All right, you guys, so Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 13 today. Oh gosh, hope you wore your hiking boots or your work boots, you know, roll your sleeves up, get your pen out. This ain't your grandma's Romans 7 Bible study. I'm just kidding. Maybe grandma was totally into the scripture. I don't know. Grandma took notes, you know, so no, grandma's great. Um, And so the goal is through verse 13, Johnny Olker's next week teaching the rest of chapter seven, just right up his alley and his heart for us being conformed to the image of Christ. Then a three week series on the advent or on Christmas um, with uh, Ken Curvin, Dustin Cloud, and Adam Barney uh, while we're in Nepal and getting back from Nepal. So uh, there's a, about a month in advance of you guys just to be preparing for what the Lord's going to do. But Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, till death do us part. Till death do us part. Chapter 6 was all about the believer's death to sin principle. Chapter 7 is the believer's death to the law principle. In chapter 6, we found that we who are immersed in Jesus are dead to sin and alive to God. We who are freed from sin are now actually slaves to someone else. We're slaves to God. Sin and death no longer have dominion over us. They don't rule us. They don't have mastery over us. But now Jesus does. And as we get to chapter 7, we find we're dead to the law. You can just look the law in the face and say, you're dead to me. Right? You're dead to me. The law no longer rules over us, but grace rules over us. We're no longer married to the law, but we're married to Christ. Now, we got to come to the book of Romans in chapter 7 and find that, you know, especially what Johnny's going to teach on next week, where it's that classic passage of, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And why don't I do the things I want to do? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this law of sin and death? And every one of us says, yeah, that's totally me. But then you're like, wait, is Paul writing this about himself or is he writing it about someone else? Or if it is, is he even a Christian or is this even, I don't even know how to feel about Romans chapter seven, uh, especially, especially next week where Johnny's at. And you got to know this whole chapter, Paul is writing more historically than personally, and he's not answering questions that would put him as a keynote speaker in a holiness conference so much as he's struggling with the place of the law in God's purpose. That's really the context of what's going on. Now, the law is mentioned in every one of the first 14 verses, and it's 35 times mentioned before verse 4 of chapter 8. So if you were to just line that all out, it'd just be a whole lot of la, 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 and not in a good way, like you're singing a Christmas carol, you know? Um... But, and he also writes the word I or myself 47 times in this chapter. So if you were to just line that all out, it'd be I, 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 myself, me, myself, I, I, you know, and imagine just hanging out with somebody that just talked about themselves like that, like a bit of an ego um, complex, you know? And, and so we're going to see chapter seven is just a focus on I and myself and what I can do. It culminates in this, oh, wretched man that I am. 
And then when we get back from probably Christmas, when you get into chapter eight, oh, the great eight, you guys, because it gets away from I, I, what can I do? What can I not do? I'm so focused on myself and it just realizes it's all about him. It's all about what he can do. It's all about what he's done. And then you get into the, the word spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit's work in our life and how that brings such great victory. So what is the place of the Mosaic law or the Ten Commandments? And I hate to spoil it for you guys, but after the Ten Commandments, which seems so hard to keep, another 603 were given, right? So not sure if anyone here has fulfilled every one of the 613 commandments of the Old Testament. Every jot, every tittle, every day since you were born, probably nobody Hate to tell you, James tells us that if you kept all of the law, but stumbled in just one of those points, then you're guilty of breaking all of it. Which just shows us that the law, Galatians says, is like a mirror that when you hold it up, it shows you how ugly you are and that you need a makeover spiritually. Okay, it's not meant to save you and it's not meant to clean you up. It's meant to show you how desperately you need a savior. So no human has ever succeeded in keeping the law. Therefore, it can never be the way of salvation for us. Uh, five ways that the law has been uh, shown to us in Romans so far uh, in its glory is that it reveals sin, chapter 3, verse 20. Then it condemns sinners, chapter 3, verse 19. It defines sin as sin or as transgression. That's in chapter 4. It brings wrath. Thank you, law. Thank you, law, for bringing wrath, right? And it's added so that the trespass might increase. In other words, it's like every time you look into that mirror of the law, there's that another, I feel like that. Now I'm 42, and I'm like, how is it that I wear glasses a few times a week, and now I have this permanent glasses line in the side? Like, is that fat that's creased in there? I don't, you know, and then I've got, sun marks from being out in the sun. I'm like, that's, what is that blotch? You know, and I'm like, this is not the young guy that I once knew, you know? Um, and that's the, the law. Every time you read it, you're like, oh my goodness, I am a sinner. I'm more of a sinner. I'm more, more and more of a sinner. It was added, the law was added so that the transgression might increase. So we would see our desperate depravity and our need for a savior. Now, we've been studying that justification comes not by the law, but grace justification. Everybody know what that word is or justified just as if I'd never sinned when we're in Jesus, we're justified. And the father looks at us just as if I, just as if I'd never sinned even one time. And now we're getting into the passages in the book of Romans that deal with sanctification to be sanctified. And that means to be set apart from the old man, to be set apart from who we once were. And because we have the Holy spirit in us, Every day, day by day, just more and more. Sometimes there's these vast, like, boom, like, whoa, I don't even cuss anymore. Or boom, like, I'm going 55 on the dot everywhere I drive, even in residential neighborhoods. You know, just kidding. You know, but like, just every, like, sometimes there's, I remember, you know, my pastor's testimony is that, like, you know, when he got saved, it was just a night and day difference. Like, it was just, and then for others, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in Jesus now and I'm just believing he's working in me and it's just a battle and every day, but every day there's just more and more conforming you into the image of Christ. So our justification is not under the law, but it's under grace and our sanctification. We find that we're not under the law, 
but we're under grace as well. And Paul has a rebuke for those in Galatians. We're not going to read it for the sake of time. Chapter three talks about, Hey, were you saved by works of the flesh and by deeds of the law or by a gracious work of the Holy spirit? And everybody who would know would say, I was not saved by the law. I was saved by God's grace. And then he says, then what are you thinking that you're going to continue on this life and you're going to be conformed into the image of Christ by going back to a set of rules that you've made to yourself and putting yourself under the law again? You were saved by the spirit and you're going to be conformed and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So as we get into chapter seven, there's three attitudes that people can have concerning the law, the law of Moses. Okay. Uh, number one, there's the legalist. Now the legalist is under the law and they've put themselves in bondage to it. And they imagine that their relationship to God depends on their obedience to the law. They're seeking to both be justified and sanctified by the law, but they're crushed by the law's inability to save them. Secondly, we have the antinomian. That's familiar to a lot of you over the last three weeks or so. It was a brand new word to many. Um, We don't use it a whole lot. But the antinomian, or also known as the libertine, is the person who kind of goes to the opposite extreme as the legalist. They blame the law for their problems. They reject the law altogether, and they claim now to be rid of the law and all of its demands. And so what they do often is they turn this liberty that they've found into a license to sin. Essentially, they go and sin their brains out and rejoice that they're not under any kind of law anymore, okay? Um, they're what's called the new morality that's been proclaimed since the 1960s, and they maintain that the law has been abolished for Christians, and that the only absolute um, left commandment left is the commandment to love, that the commands have no place in the Christian life. And then we have a third group, which I believe is the biblical balance that we ought to strike And that's the law-fulfilling free people. You say that three times fast. No, don't do it. But the law-fulfilling free people, they preserve the balance between uh, the legalist and the libertine, right? They rejoice in their freedom from the law for justification and sanctification both. And they rejoice in their freedom to now fulfill it. They delight in the law as the revelation of God's will but they recognize that the power to fulfill the law is not in their flesh or in the rule itself, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, Paul wants us to plumb the depths in chapter 7 of our union with Christ by looking at, number one, our old relationship with the law and our new relationship with Jesus, and then the difference between the two which matters. So, looking at a quick outline, you can even maybe write in your Bible as these little headings. Uh, The study of the seventh chapter of Romans, there's three main kind of breakdowns of it. Verses one through six, the relationship between the believer and the law. Sometimes I like to do this in my Bible, and it helps as I'm studying later, as I'm maybe witnessing to somebody, or as I get thrown into just a sudden opportunity to, to teach, you know, happens every now and then, and it should happen for you too. Like, hey, share from us, you know. Uh, just maybe put a little bracket between 
in uh, one and six and just say, ah, oh, the believer's uh, relationship with the law. Okay. Then seven through 13, the relationship between sin and the law. And that's as far as we're going to get today. And then Johnny's going to bust out next week, 14 through 25, the relationship between the believer and sin. You don't want to miss that one. Trust me. Okay. All right. Verses one through six. We're fine. That was an introduction that made you sweat a little bit. We have a message to the legalist. All right. It's about our old release from the law by dying to it. And he starts out with a legal principle that we all can appreciate. Look in verse one. Or do you not know brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, the legalist, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So speaking about the law and the power that the law has, and he goes into a domestic illustration, verses two and three. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she's called adulteress. Or as the Phillips translation says, she incurs the stigma of adultery. But if her husband dies, she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. And so there's this domestic illustration of the death um, to the law principle. And he uses this picture of marriage. And I was just trying to find all kinds of maybe helpful illustrations because this section is very heavy. It's thick. You cut your teeth on this, you're going to be sore, right? Um, and all that I really found were some funny little cartoons on Google of, uh, you know, two mummies that were buried together and one mummy has all the cloth on her, you know, and the other one's freezing to death over, you know, whatever, but, um, death and the stuff. Okay. Well, anyway, and the great and creative mind of Sandy Adams really brought it down for me. And this was the last minute before I got here. I was like, I got to share this to people cause it will help. Paul compares our relationship to the law with a marriage. You'd think that since the law didn't make a man right with God, he could just walk away. But it's not that easy. It's like a marriage. You can't just bail out. Mankind is bound to the law and it's till death do us part. Before we come to Jesus, we were married to Mr. Law. This is where he's going to introduce for us Mr. Law versus Mr. Love. Okay, We were married to Mr. Law, <clears throat> ah, the perfect mate. The law was perfect. Ladies, imagine being married to the perfect husband. He wakes up in the morning, not a hair out of place. He smiles and prays before he drops out of bed and then does 100 push-ups and 200 sit-ups. That before, that's before he serves you a hot, delicious breakfast in bed. Granted, this might be nice for a while until Mr. Perfect starts pointing out ways that you're not. You could lose a few pounds. Why is he running a white glove over the mantle? Mr. Perfect is now Mr. Pest. In fact, life with Mr. Perfect could get so bad, uh, you could go to uh, court to file a divorce, but the judge asks on what grounds, forget it, your hubby is perfect. So you try to kill him. I mean, that's the next step. <laughs> you spike his juice with a few spoonfuls of arsenic, 
But Mr. Perfect is so healthy, all he gets is a stomachache. Finally, you conclude the only way to really get free from him is to kill yourself. And living under the roof with legalism is the same as being married to Mr. Perfect. It's frustrating and condemning, and there's no way out. The law is perfect. It stands forever. Your only way out is to die, and God took care of that. We died with Christ. I mean, that's just so simple. The whole analogy, everything. We could just end right now and have... I've made that joke with you before, Iris. We're not going to have the worship team come up yet. The one thing that invalidates the law of marriage, of a marriage union, is death. Death brings release from all contractual obligations involving the dead person. It's a good reminder from Paul on the length and duration of marriage and that it's to be till death. Now, why is the law referred to as a marriage? The law. The law is what God has demanded and required for all humanity. We're created by him to reflect his glory. The problem is that we have not worshipped him. We've worshipped the creator instead. We have a moral responsibility to produce righteousness and holiness before God, but we can't because of our own sin. And so we have this problem because we've got a law that is a rule that wields authority and demands absolutely perfect obedience. Specifically, Paul is talking to Jews about the Mosaic law. God called Israel out of Egypt. He gave them the Ten Commandments, 603 added later. And the experience of the Jews under the command is similar to the non-Jews who are not under the command of the law, but are under the the heart conscience that God has put there. Chapter 7 basically shows us that the law has this stranglehold on us or has its boot on our neck. And the only way to get out from underneath it is to die. It's to die. Um, If the husband dies... Even though she would do the exact same thing and go get married, she's not considered an adulterer. Death has dissolved the union in a way that is lawful and legitimate. And the second marriage is morally legitimate because death has terminated the first. And so then in verse 4, we get into the theological application of this, where he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have been freed from the law through the body of Christ that you may be buried, uh, buried, married. I know it feels like it sometimes, but oh no, it's joking. Not for me. Just I've heard, I've heard stories that you may be married. Lips are a little swollen this morning. Married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that you may bear fruit to God. And so becoming a Christian is a complete change in relationship and in allegiance. How can this new union be possible? The New Living Translation puts it this way. So then, dear friends, the point is this. The law no longer holds you under its power because you died to its power when you died with Christ on the cross. Verse 4 shows us the beginning of the new. That just as death determines, or rather terminates a marriage contract 
and permits remarriage, so we also died to the law through the body of Christ so that we might be remarried to another. Through our personal union with Christ, we have shared in his death. And we're united with Christ who said himself, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it completely. And so as we are in Jesus, the Lord sees us, the Father sees us through the Son in his absolutely perfect obedience. Like Colossians 3.3 3 says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Leon Morris wrote, and I have a quote for you on the screen. Believers are through with the law. It's not for them an option as a way of salvation. They do not seek to be right with God by obeying some form of law as the adherents of almost all religions have done. So, you know, really that's the source and sum and and the fullness of every other religion in the world is how they can muster up strength to be perfect and try to make themselves uh, have some sort of Uh, paradise or nirvana based upon their own good works. Whereas Christianity realizes we could never do it, but our God and our creator has done it for us so that we can just rest in him and, and be seen as if we were the perfect ones when we all know that it was him. And so that causes us to worship him for his awesome rescue plan and his great grace for us. And so in that died to the law so that we could be married to another, we're not cheaters. We're not adulterers. We aren't cheating on the law or committing adultery with the law, but we're dead to the law through Christ. And we're married to the one who was raised from the dead. We're united with Christ in his new life. And chapter six showed us this, that when we are immersing ourselves in the gospel, we have received conversion because of the grace of God. We are new creations. We're born again. We go to the waters of baptism to show the world, hey, I've been crucified with Christ by faith, man. That old Rory, he's buried in the waters of baptism. He dead, okay? And just as Jesus rose from the dead, so too I also raise to new life because I'm uniting myself with Jesus by faith. And the life that I now live, I live by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in me. And I'm a new creation. I'm a new person. I'm regenerated. I'm born again. And I don't live by the law and I don't live for the flesh and I'm not a slave to sin but I live for Jesus. I'm a slave to Jesus and I have a new husband. If you pardon the metaphor, every man in this room is uncomfortable with it, but his name is Jesus. Okay. Um, So we have this new relationship and new allegiance. Tim Keller said, you can be either married to the law or married to Christ, but you cannot be unmarried. Being married to Christ is the final answer to the question, can a Christian live as he or she chooses? No, because we're in love with Christ. I was about 14 years old when I really started living for Jesus. I loved Jesus as a kid out on the ranch I grew up. I used to stand by the fuel tanks and witness to the hired men, tell them about Jesus. They thought I was crazy. Um, But I was baptized with the Holy Spirit when I was 14 years old. And you guys, I really went for it, like in school, starting a Bible study, open air preaching, telling people about the Lord, bit of a Bible thumper, Jesus freak, all that stuff. 
And, and I remember my personal finance class, my junior year of high school, we had to basically dress up in like a suit, like we were going to a job interview and, and we had to give an interview in front of the whole class. And so I remember my teacher telling me, you know, like, tell us a little bit about yourself. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, uh, blah, 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 blah. And then I just started telling my testimony of how Jesus changed me for me to selfish little brat thinking only about himself to like being born again and just want to serve others and tell people about heaven. And, you know, and I used this phrase and then I fell in love with Jesus and he just, whoa, 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 stop the class, stop the interview. You're freaking me out, man. Like in front of the whole class, like, whoa, don't use that. Don't ever in any job interview say you fell in love with Jesus. Okay. I'm like, yeah, I guess it is kind of weird. You know, um, and like, yeah, the whole class is like, yeah, oh, you know, I'm like, what? Like, if you really knew what he did, man, you're all his, you're all in. I love Jesus. I just want to live for him, right? We're in love with Christ. So why would we just go ahead and, and just taste and drink and wallow in the passing pleasures of sin that end in death and condemnation and wrath? You might word it a little differently. Maybe the whole fall in love vibe isn't Prineville, but I love Jesus, Right? All right, uh, so what happens when someone works hard and makes a whole lot of money and possessions and then marries someone, it becomes theirs through the legal union. We find that to be true through our union with Jesus, that we become inheritors of all the blessings of the Son of God, his righteousness and the inheritance of everlasting life. The legitimate hold of the law was broken in a legitimate way. Christ bore the punishment. Christ was obedience. And then Sandy Adams wraps it up good when he says, and when you die to Mr. Law, you can marry another. That is Jesus. Notice this. We go from perfect Mr. Law to gracious Mr. Love. And what a difference that makes. Mr. Love doesn't always expect perfection. John tells us love covers a multitude of sins. Mr. Love doesn't check the house with a white glove. He helps you pick up. He's even patient when you put on a few pounds. There's no pressure to perform with Mr. Love like there was with Mr. Law. With law, you obeyed because you got to. With love, you obey because you get to. See the difference? There's a radical difference between the old and new relationship. Uh, It's what... The Old Testament calls the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, there was just a law given that you were expected to try to perform to show you that you could never perform. But we took that as, I'm going to try to muster up as much of white knuckle strength as I can, pull myself up by my own bootstraps and try to perform it. Even though the second the law was given to me, I threw my earring in a fire, made a golden calf and committed immorality. And 23,000 of us died in one day, right? Uh, no, I can still do it. I can still make it on my own. And then finally, like after a period of time where the Lord's like, do you see how you can't do it? Enter in the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Jeremiah, where they both use the same language, where the day is coming, where I'm going to give you a new covenant. I'm going to take the heart of stone out of you. And I'm going to put in you a heart of flesh that beats and knows God. You don't have to be told anymore. Hey, know God. You'd be like, I already know him. I know him deep inside. We like to sing the worship song from the inside out. And that is now how we love the Lord and have relationship with the Lord. It's not external works that we're trying to perform. It's just flowing out of a heart that is in relationship 
uh, with God. All right, you guys, we got limited time today. We got to bust out the rest of these verses. Um, but in our marriage to this resurrected husband, uh, it's so that we might bear fruit to God or that we might be fertile, that we might be fertile. Chuck Smith said, and this is the founder of Calvary Chapel back in the 70s, God is not desiring to be in a factory inspecting the works, but rather he wants to be in his garden enjoying the fruit. And the New Testament speaks of many different types of fruit. People won to Christ are fruit. Holy living is a fruit. Gifts brought to God are fruits. The fruits of the spirit are fruits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, right? Good works are fruit, Colossians tells us. The fruit of our lips that is praise is fruit. Tim Keller says, so does the Christian ignore the moral law of God? Not at all. We now look at it as an expression of God's desires. He loves honesty, purity, generosity, truth, integrity, kindness, and so on. So now use the law to please the one who saves us. So we are not under the law. We are not married to it. We're married to Christ. We're seeking to please him. And so the law's precepts are ways to honor the one we love. So now the law becomes just a way to to know what the Lord desires, to know that he wants our total heart. He doesn't want us offering up our passions to other gods. He wants us to take specific time out of our week to rest and just be poured into by him and to enjoy him. He wants us to have proper relationships with our neighbor where we're not coveting all their stuff and lying against them and reviling them and gossiping about them and stealing their things and you know, all of that, you know, he wants us to have beautiful, sweet relationship with him and beautiful, sweet relationship with uh, everyone around us. Now, I don't have the time to get into it today and you probably don't have the bandwidth to care about it today, but this whole bear fruit to God in the midst of a marriage metaphor has uh, been known by some to speak of the radical act of marriage of bearing children. And there's been commentators out there that speak of this fruit to God, speaking of bearing fruit uh, of children in the faith, making disciples, but also serving the Lord. And it's funny because I would have never thought this personally just by a quick read through, but there's like guys that are like, no way, it's not talking about um, bearing children in this marriage like this. That's like gross, you know, and then other people, you're just being a prude. It's totally talking about the relationship bearing forth, you know, and it's like, okay, let's just... Step aside from the metaphor for a moment, uh, can we guys? Um, but as we move on in verse five, for when we were in the flesh, our sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So we just see the, the sinful fallen condition of what sin does with the law. When we're in the flesh, we have these motions of sin or sinful passions that are then provoked to rebellion. They're at work within the different parts of our bodies and within our faculties to bear children, if you will, or to bear fruit to death. You know, and just in the last chapter, we saw what, you know, what fruit do you have from those things that you used to be ashamed of? There's nothing good that came from that life of 
the partying than the revelry and the just living according to licentiousness. You know, those are things that you don't tell grandma about in the postcard that you write home. You, you know, those are things you kind of keep quiet and you don't really tell your kids about, you know. And, uh, and so chapter 7 just says the same thing, man. The, the sinful passions that were at work in our members, all that it was doing was working results that ended in death and the wrath of God being upon us. And then verse 6 But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And so now there's just this new way that we live. There's a new way that we serve. We serve in what's called the newness of the spirit. It speaks of power. It speaks of vitality. And it's contrasted with how you might have served in the past which was oldness of a letter, a brought routine, some kind of bondage. You got on a road that you could never get out of. It led to a rut, which led to rot in your life. And it's a wonderful word to us today who are living for the Lord and we're serving in various capacities. By the way, if you're a Christian here in this room today, God's called you and has gifted you with some kind of gift or multiple gifts so that you can serve in the local church in some way. And, uh, and that might mean teaching, preaching, worship, you know, that might mean sound tech. That might mean, um, children that might mean yard that might mean whatever. Like you have some gifts that the Lord's given you and he wants you to serve. And there's a new way that you serve. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us that those who serve ought to serve with the ability that God provides. And just maybe some encouragement to you. Maybe you do serve in the church, but just for various reasons, like it's becoming a bit of a grind or you're kind of starting to get rubbed the wrong way or you're getting bitter about stuff and it's just, you're frustrated and you're you know, you're vacuuming downstairs, you stupid kids, can't they just keep the goldfish in the cup? You know, it's not that hard. I've been keeping, you know, and you're wiping around the toilet and you're like, goodness gracious, you know, put a Cheerio in the bowl, you know, just whatever. And you're just, oh, I'm looking at you, Chris Newell. All right. And, you know, Charles Spurgeon has this incredible message to his students where he talks about when we're serving the Lord, we can just you know, I'm good at serving. I'm good at sweeping. And I don't need the Lord for this. I can do it on my own, you know, and we just become machines and serving. And it just, I mean, yeah, maybe it even looks good still, whatever, but you're missing out on the, on the relationship. You're missing out on the power. And when you are serving, not as a machine or in the oldness of the letter, but you're serving because you love Jesus. And by loving Jesus and knowing he loves you, you love his people, you love his bride, and you just want to help them know the Lord more. And you just want to bless them. It's just flowing out of you. And it's just a blessing to everyone. They walk by you and it's like walking by spring flowers, you know, because you just, but I, I've known people and they're serving to get recognition from the pastor and they're serving that they one day will be appointed as deacons and they're serving, you know, that, you know, uh, they could please appease God and maybe get something that they want. And they're just bitter and they stink when you walk by them. And you know what? Romans chapter seven says, guys, it's time to serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the two tablets. Like, Hey, have fun carrying these around. All right. Uh, you guys are lucky you're in first service because I kind of got to go fast um, through this. 
Verses 7 through 12. What? We're still going through verse 12? Yeah, okay. The defense of the law's unjust criticism. And so we go from the message to the legalists to the message to the antinomians, okay? Um, In reading verses 1 through 6, a first thought is, it sure seems like the law is some kind of necessary evil that Jesus delivers us from. Thank goodness we died to it so we don't have to be married to it anymore. John Stott says, all this is strong meat and strong language. The law is apparently characterized as barring marriage to Christ, arousing sin, causing death, and impeding life in the spirit so that the sooner we gain freedom from it, the better. It must have sounded to some like full-blown antinomianism. Paul then asked the ultimate antinomian question. Did I even tell you what antinomian is? I know it's week three of using that word. And it basically just means like no law. Like there's no law and we can just sin our brains out because we've been freed from the law and from all rules. Woohoo, party animal. Okay, that's essentially the antinomian. Okay, and so, but Paul's going to take just a minute and he's going to actually defend the law that it's not the law that's bad. You guys ever watch like Tom and Jerry or something? Um, Yeah, right on. Yeah. and I think Tom and Jerry, it's probably Looney Tunes or something, I don't know. But, you know, the cat's chasing the mouse or something, and somehow the cat's tail catches on fire. And uh, and he asks, you know, hey, do you smell something burning, you know? You smell, or, or it's like, mm, what's cooking, you know? And then the one getting chased is like, it's you, stupid, you know? And that's kind of what's going to happen right here. Like, oh, the law, it must be super bad, you know? And it reeks, you know? And then, but Paul's going to be like, it's not the law. It's you, stupid. Like, you're the sicko, okay? You're the problem with the whole world. It's you. Individually, your rank. You know, um, so verse seven, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? The short answer, certainly not. The long answer, on the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would, have, uh, for I would not have known covetousness or lust unless the law had said, thou shalt not covet okay so is the law something that is sinful we know that it's not you read through the bible man psalm 119 and even psalm 19 it's just a whole psalm about how wonderful and beautiful the law is and how i want to meditate on it i want to memorize it it's a you know light unto my uh feet how's that go uh light word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path you know so it's good and it's wonderful, but, uh, but in, in fact, by it, because of the law, I found out I was a sinner. I would have never known covetousness unless the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So co- the interesting thing here in all of this is, so Paul had kept the whole law. When you read Philippians chapter three, he's like, I was the best Jew of the best Jews in every stinking way possible. Okay. Like concerning the law, I'm blameless. I was circumcised the eighth day, just in case you were wondering, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, blameless concerning the law, concerning zeal. I was so zealous. I was killing Christians. You know, he's like, I was the best Jew you could ever have met. He, some believe that Paul was the rich young ruler that Jesus met who came up to Jesus and said, Hey, what do I need to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, you got to keep the whole law. And he was like, I've done that since my youth. 
And then the, and he's starting to walk away like, going to heaven, going to heaven. And then Jesus says, oh, hold on. Here's one thing that you lack. Go sell everything that you own and give it to the poor. And he went away sad because he was super wealthy. Some think that this was Paul because Paul had all of the externals totally down. But there's one tenth commandment that says, yeah, I don't really care how it looks on the outside. I care about how it looks on the inside. And inside, you're covetous. You're lustful. And nobody knows it because it's something that's going on inside of here. And so for some reason, Paul mentions this as that one thing that just nailed him to the wall that he was condemned uh, before Christ. Okay, so uh, this covetousness is internal. It's a desire, a drive, a lust. It's a form of idolatry. Uh, idolatry. It puts uh, the object or the desire in the place of God. It's an inward attitude and an inward issue. And it goes right to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you've heard that it was said of old, do not murder. But I'm telling you, if you're angry with someone in your heart, you've already murdered them. Because anger is that kernel of sin at the root of murder. Uh, Or you've heard from that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you lust in your heart after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart, right? And it's because uh, lust is that kernel root sin of adultery. I remember my pastor and I went to lunch at Kim Wah's restaurant in Corvallis. And we go into the restaurant. We kind of frequented that restaurant. And Kim was a great guy. We loved him. And uh, we're just going to sit down. And for I don't know why, but I decided, oh, hey, I'm going to sit over here and kind of face outside. you know. And he's like, oh, I know what you're doing. I'm like, um, you do? <laughs> he's like, yeah, so you can see the pretty ladies in the short skirts walking by. you know. And I'm like, no. <laughs> I was like, I'm married, you know, and the Bible tells me I need to have eyes uh, for my wife and to not lust. And he's like, easy cowboy. Like I just was, to, you know, like I didn't want a whole sermon from the whole thing. But, uh, you know, Jesus says, yeah, you don't want to sit looking out the window, staring at the ladies walking by because that's the root of adultery in the heart. Okay. Now going on to verse eight, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of sinful desire for apart from the law, sin was dead. Let me put it in the easy paraphrase of the new living translation, but sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have the power. And so the commandments in the old Testament law gave opportunity for sin. They gave sin a starting point. And I've always loved this thought from Romans chapter seven. The law is something that's good, but our sin is so bad. We use the law as like an aircraft carrier out in the middle of the ocean to launch off of, to just, just launch us into all kinds of sin. That's how wicked we are. That's how sinful the law is just You know, it's just there. It's just showing us something. And we say, thank you very much for showing me what I want to do now. And we take off into that and we just uh, dive into all kinds of sin. The the language actually speaks of a military base or a, a base of operations for an expedition. That's what sin has used the law for. 
this is a strange phenomenon that's called contra-suggestibility. Uh, it's the propensity for some people to react negatively to any direction. You've heard it said that a rule was meant to be broken, right? All the rule does is provide sinner with a target to shoot at, okay? Uh, we see the do not, and we immediately want to do it. It's kind of like mom and dad go out on a date, you know, and they leave you home alone, and dad's just like, hey, son, I was reading the TV guide because it's 1984, you know, and hey, at nine o'clock on channel 37, there's this whole like, you know, beach show that's on. I really don't want you to watch that. Stay away from channel 37 at nine o'clock. Okay, son. Love you, buddy. And then they head off on their date. And all the kid is doing like all night long is like, it's 837 and I'm on channel 36. Oh gosh. You know, uh, it's just like, we can't get it out of our mind. Uh, and so we have this wicked sinful uh, tendency to contra suggestibility. Um, Augustine was kind of a, a church father from the old days. And he would refer to this as the perversity of our heart or a desire to do something for no other reason than because it's forbidden. We hear the command and we have this perversity to go do it. Now, let me read you from Confessions of St. Augustine, where he says, Near our vineyard, there was a pear tree loaded with fruit, though the fruit was not particularly attractive either in color or taste. Um, I and some other youths conceived the idea of shaking the pears off this tree and carrying them away. We set out late at night and stole all the fruit that we could carry. And this was not to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few, but then we threw the rest to the pigs. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. I had plenty of better pears of my own. I only took these ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away. And all I tasted in them was my own iniquity which I enjoyed very much. And then Augustine writes like a conversation between him and the Lord of what he felt was going on in his heart at that time. And he says, in a perverse way, all men imitate you, God, who put themselves far from you. What then was it that I loved in that theft of mine? In what way awkwardly and perversely did I imitate my Lord? Did I find it pleasant to break your law? unpunished and so producing a darkened shadow of omnipotence what a sight a servant running away from his master and following a shadow could i enjoy what was forbidden for no other reason except that it was forbidden and so sin arouses in us all manner of evil desire to just enjoy what's forbidden just for the sake of it being forbidden james 1 14 says, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own uh, desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full blown gives birth, uh, gives, brings forth death. And so James just does a great job of kind of a step-by-step process of how we are tempted and what temptation leads to. But verse 8 tells us that apart from the law, sin was dead. 
Before there was no law, there was, there was no rousing of, the, of sin in us. Look at verse 9. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. He essentially says what a paraphrase is, is that I was without understanding of the law. And so I didn't really like have this propensity to just run after these sins. And verse 10 tells us in the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. So we're seeing you guys that the law is good. The commandments, they bring life and that's their intended purpose. They, they're good and they um, bring life. If you were able to, com- um, to fully do them, none of us could ever do that though. Um, the sinner realizes, man, it brings death. And guys, we're only going through verse 13. So look at where we're at. We're already in verse 11. Can you just breathe? Oh yeah, this is so great. Verse 11, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. So sin used the commandment to kill me. It deceived me. It made promises it could never deliver on. It promised no consequences. And so I ran after it just like Eve did in the garden. Was the promise something good that that the serpent was like, you eat this, you'll be like God. And you'll know good and evil. You'll know what you've been missing out on and what God's been trying to keep you from. And so that, oh, this is gonna bring life. And when she ate it and handed it to her husband, she found that it only brought <coughs> death. All right, we'll have the worship team come on up. And just, it's interesting because Paul uses the word I so many times. There's just, there's a lot of different understandings on who he's referring to. And in one way, he's talking about himself. And in one way, it's so broad that he's talking about all of us. And then some have said, and in one way, he's talking about Adam and Eve. And then some have said in one way, he's talking about Israel. And in all of my studying and like, I'll just say, yes. (laughs) Like, yeah, all of it. It just shows what James says, how we are tempted and deceived and you know our desires are like i want that i'm gonna take that and when we go ahead and go for it it just leads to death the conclusion of it all is verse 12 that the law is holy it's good to read read the ten commandments not with an eye that i must do these to appease god but now that i'm married to jesus I want to do these because this shows me what he likes. I want to do these things to love him. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and just and good. Verse 13 has then what is good become death to me. Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Kind of deep, huh? Man, you can see why like Harvard used to use the book of Romans as like teaching students how to argue. I mean, he is going through the arguments um, in every way, shape or form. Chapter six, chapter seven. um, Should we live for sin since there's grace? Uh, Should we live for sin now that the law isn't for us anymore. Um, and he just goes on these rampages 
um, in these discourses concerning what our new status is in Jesus. In chapter six, we saw we're not going to keep living on in sin because we're dead to sin because we're with Jesus and Jesus died and rose again. So we also have died and we're risen again to new life. We're not going to keep living on in sin because we used to be slaves to sin, but now we're slaves of another. We're slaves of Jesus and slaves of obedience and slaves of righteousness. And now that the law, we're not under the law. And that doesn't mean that the law was ever bad. It doesn't mean that we just disregard the law. It just means that, you know, we're dead to the law. We're married to another. We have new allegiance. We have new obedience. We have new passions. And we realize that that law was just something that showed us what he wants. And so we're going to live in it to please him um, with, with joyful hearts. And not by the strength of our flesh, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Okay, I'm just kidding. Will you guys stand with me? Lord, we just, I know for me, studying this this week, it's like, oh my goodness. and I just feel like my brain capacity is, it is maxed out. And maybe others feel this way. There's probably others that are like, oh, for another hour. And, um, but Lord, we just... We're, we're picking it up, Lord. We're picking up what you're laying down. We're starting to get it. Lord, we would just say, like John the Baptist, less of me and more of you. I can never do it. And my bent towards sin is that every day I'm going to try to be a good person, do better, be better. Maybe I'll please you. Maybe I'll appease you. And Lord, you don't want us living under the heavy thumb of the, the law and the letter. Lord, you want us just resting in grace, enjoying what you've already done, considering your thoughts towards us, that in your creating of us, you created us to have a relationship with you. You've been good to us and you have loved us just because you love us. You have given us mercy. You've given us grace. And it never had to do with our actions or lack thereof. Just because you are awesome and you are good. So Lord, let us respond to that with reciprocal love. Lord, let us say I do to the new groom, to Jesus. Let us walk in obedience, not because we have to, but because we get to. And Lord, it's, it's deep, it's, it's hard for us, Lord, it's a stretch. And so we just ask that you would pour your spirit out on us afresh and give us ability, Lord, so that you'd be glorified. Let's close in this song together. All right, you guys, going into this week, Thanksgiving weekend, you're going with the relatives. The ones that live in the valley. No, I'm just kidding. And I just encourage you, you go into this week and you are going to be tempted in all kinds of ways. And you know how the enemy likes to come at you. And you know how the sinful nature, you, you like to go off that launching pad of the law and of the rules. Just be aware of it. Romans so far has kept telling us, don't you know this is how it happens? Don't you know this is what it's like? Don't you know? You know Start verbalizing and vocalizing it. Start speaking out. You know what? Hey, how shall I who've died to sin live any longer in it? Start saying that. 
You're just feeling your heart beat, your pulse rate, starting to sweat, sweaty lip. How shall I who died to sin live any longer in it? Right? I, I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I'm a slave to righteousness. Start speaking it out. All right? Uh, how about this one? Like, I'm not married to the law anymore. All right? Those of you that are legalists by nature, the rule keepers, the stiff people, nobody wants to invite to a party. Start saying it out loud. Let your family hear it. I'm not married to the law anymore. But those of you that are antinomians out there, you're waiting for Friday. Everybody's working for the weekend, right? You know who you are. You might not say I'm married to the law anymore. You might say I'm married to Jesus now. Start verbalizing, vocalizing it, rejoicing in it, giving God glory for it. Watch the victory happen in your life. Amen? All right. Hey, stick around for the donut festival, you guys. Love to have you hang around for a half an hour. God bless you guys. Happy Thanksgiving.